Okay, sounds good. So when do you guys want to? Oh, oh yeah, it's uh, so. Everyone, my name is Talha. I'm the co-founder and CTO at RemoteBase.com. With me is Alan. So Alan is the CTO at Bridge Financial Technology. Uh, a little bit about Alan. I was, by the way, going through your profile. Found it really interesting. <laughs> to be honest, like Alan did uh, did his BS from University of Illinois in mathematics uh, and actuarial sciences as well, right? And then. Uh, uh, Alan did his master's in finance from University of Illinois, and then Alan did another master's from University of Chicago in computer science. So, you know, from being mathematics to finance to computer science, that's pretty interesting. Alan uh, did, uh, was the co-founder at Project FixUp, uh, and then now Alan is working at the CTO at Bridge Financial Technology. So, very interesting, Alan, from, you know, uh, switching fields to being a co-founder and now working for a company that is growing pretty fast. So how has your experience been so far? Yeah, it's been, um, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, it's all that introduction. I, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a really fun ride. I think that I, um, it, I enjoyed, uh, mailing and map, but I never sort of found a, um, a very good, uh, professional fit with that. I spent a brief time as an actuary. Um, and if you don't know, the actuarial science industry is, you know, quite structured in terms of career progression, uh, which I did not like. Um, and I sort of tried different iterations on math and technical or quantitative skills to, um, find my place in the world professionally. And part of that was. Uh, you know, going into the finance industry, or a big part of that, I should say, was going into the finance mm-hmm. industry and trying to become a quant on Wall Street and and sort of, um, which I did. I, I worked on, on high frequency trading algorithms and things like that. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, the central issue for me was, you know, I wanted to get back to my roots a little bit in terms of just solving a problem and feeling connected to the solution of that problem and i wasn't necessarily serviced by that um in uh in a purely quantitative field and that's not to say that it's uh that's just to say that it's, it's not for me but then yes yeah, so i ended mm-hmm. up um going back to my first love which is computer science and and been loving it ever since yeah i mean it's amazing like you did not have any formal education in computer science yet you chose to i mean uh, do a master's in it. So how was it like like doing the master's in something that I'm assuming that you did not know a lot about it. I mean, we were discussing this even before the podcast and you said that you've been a hacker for a very long time. So I'm assuming that you were a hacker before you decided to do a master's in computer science. Yeah, I uh, started writing code actually at the age of 10, if you can believe it. Um, I, <laughs> I that's clearly you know, I did work on. Yeah, I first I first where I I had sort of uh, nerdy surroundings growing up. I worked on uh, basic um, growing up, and then I discovered C. Um, really fell in love with C a lot, and then you know found out about Python and Java and uh, all these wonderful things in high school and college, and it was sort of just like. Uh, at the peripheral for me, it was more of a hobby. Um, mm-hmm. and I never really thought, uh, 
much more than that. Um, I think that uh, what it was like going through a, a master's program, having done a lot of like, I actually think that the master's was quite um, approachable for me because I think a lot of the, and this might resonate with a lot of your audiences, uh, there was quite a bit of fear among my mm-hmm. uh, my colleagues in the master's program around algorithms. Uh, the University of Chicago uh, yeah. has... We all are afraid of algorithms, by the way. Yeah, 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 and uh, they, you know, U Chicago has a good, a really good math program, and they have a very tough algorithms course, and um, it's quite, quite infamous among students and alum and things like that. And uh, I think that my mathematics, my my mathematics training, really prepared me for that side of it, and I think that that um, continues to serve me to this day, just being able to think through, um, you know, go from programming language to programming language and think through, okay, what is it fundamentally that you're doing? Like, how are the equations getting processed and how are you yeah. moving through the data? Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, you get that training as a computer scientist, um, yeah. but you really get exposed to that stuff as, uh, by just majoring in pure math. Um, and it's, uh, uh, and it, it's, it's been helpful. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm pretty curious. Like you said that you brought your first line of code at the age of 10. What did you write? Was it a printf or was a fully functional software? I wrote a, uh, a, a, you know, I don't know if this is, uh, something you were supposed to do as a kid or not, but I, or yesterday <laughs> I wrote, I wrote a thing that would modify America Online, um, and the modification would uh, automate certain tasks that I wanted to do. Sometimes those things were kind of, you know, playful jabs at my friends, or um, you know, just kind of whatever. Um, so it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of um, it, was, it was primarily driven by America Online. <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 you were talking about. So at the age of 10, you wrote your first line of code, you wrote your first software. What happened afterwards? Like, uh, what were you feeling around this time? Like, were you sold on the idea that you're going to be the computer scientist or you were still not sure, like, you know, where you had it or why are you doing it? No, I wasn't, um, I didn't know what I want. I mean, I think I was just like a lot of kids that were, or curious about a lot of things. You know, my friends and I liked video games, we liked computers, we liked riding bikes. Um, mm-hmm. I was a very uh, kind of do-it-yourself uh, builder type of kid. Like an example is um, I would actually get like parts to assemble bikes and mm-hmm. where like if other people in my neighborhood, you know, had a bike and they wanted to like disassemble the parts or something, or, or they didn't need a part or whatever. I needed a chain, like something like this. Um, so I was always kind of just curious about making things and building things. And I didn't know Mm -hmm. where that would like end up, you know, mechanical engineering or chemical engineering or like something like this. But I was just knew that I wanted to like create things. Yeah. I think uh, an important question here. So I come from Pakistan. Uh, so a lot of people in Pakistan 
uh, they are technically very sound. So they start. Uh, I, I know a lot of people who start coding at a very early age, or they are interested in technology one way or the other. But when they, you know, when they start college, they are completely clueless. Like a lot of them don't want to pursue computer science or any technical degree for that matter, because you know uh, they're not prepared or they don't know how to go about it. So, were you also like that when you were about to go to college, or uh, because you were dabbling with code and softwares and all, but then you chose to be uh, do a bachelor's degree in mathematics? So, uh, why was that? Like I'm curious to know the process of decision making. Yeah, I think it was. Um, so the University of Illinois has a, a very good computer science program, which is where I went to undergraduate. Um, and so it was a very popular thing to do. Uh, honestly, uh, and this is you know slightly embarrassing. I wanted to make sure that my college years were very fun, and mm-hmm. um, I I had friends that. Uh, majored in computer science and um, or like and any of the engineering disciplines, and they were just always in the lab, like all the time. <laughs> um, if you're if you're a chemical engineer, you're <laughs> in, you know you're in the lab. Uh, if you're a computer scientist, <laughs> yeah, if you're in computer science, you go in and you know what kind of keeps you in the lab of like piling you're working on a bug or something. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. And math was it you know things like math and physics and you know maybe to a lesser extent physics but some of these more theoretical majors they were a little bit more freeing in terms of your time i thought um mm-hmm. you get your, your homework assignment you read it there's a few questions on it you can think about it and then you can have those thoughts in your head and you know go and do other things so i found uh just the subject matter, like the format of pursuing the major a little bit more asynchronous. Um, mm-hmm. And part of it, honestly, was my, so my first year uh, at the University of Illinois, my friends and I took a road trip. And oh, nice. it was such a seminal moment uh, for me growing uh-huh. up, you know, like the all-night uh-huh. road trip and kind of um, uh-huh. cheer about and see about in movies yeah. and like what's going to happen here. And I was very excited about yeah. it. And I wait, wait, hey, sorry, 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 where did you go for the road trip? Like, uh, we went, I think, I think the first year we went to Daytona, Florida, I want to say. It was always like different spots in Florida. So we would go to Daytona or Miami or, or you know, whatever. So, and I think from Central Illinois, it was like a, I want to say like a 15-hour drive or something like this. Yes. And, right. Um, right. yeah, University of Illinois was on semesters. So we had a break in the fall and then a break in the spring. Um, and then you were off for a good amount of time over the winter. Yeah. Um, you were on the best point of Florida, by the way. That's why you settled here as well, like from road trips to living here forever. I mean, at least yeah. not forever for now. I mean, uh, that's got to mean something. So nice. So road yeah. trips, and then you were having these road trips with your friend, and you were also pursuing mathematics uh, in Illinois. So what happened afterwards? So afterwards I graduated, I wasn't quite sure what to do with a math degree. I went into the insurance industry, spent some time as an actuary. Um, and that's, uh, and I would say really in, in college, uh, my interest in finance really picked up. Um, and I love to be sort of, uh, the, I was attracted to what I think is just the amount of data 
Um, there's something very empowering in finance about just having all of the data centralized and combined yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and collected yeah. and aggregated in the right way that can enable you to make decisions and solve problems. Um, and so I, I think I went about uh, finance not through an engineering lens, but through the quantitative and technical lens. So starting off as um, an actuary and then wanting to do, uh, I, I pursued a PhD in finance so that I could um, uh, become a quant on Wall Street and and sort of mm -hmm. um, get into the, the really mathematical side of the business. But in doing that, I, um, you know, I, I, I worked at hedge funds and, and market making shops and I definitely got that experience that it was, there's a lot of data, it comes in very quickly. You need to have pipelines and aggregation and the ability to uh, process yeah. that data and turn around and, and sort of, you know, make something out of it. Um, and uh, that just sort of started interesting uh, uh, piquing my interest even more and more and more over time. And it, yeah. it involved maths as well. Like you were using whatever you learned in your degree in this, uh, yeah. in, in the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, computer science is, has been very empowering for me because, you know, um, I ended up working at a firm that, that had, uh, quants on staff and PhDs and, um, yeah, they, uh, they seemed happy, they seemed well-paid and, and, you know, they were, they were great people, but, uh, mm -hmm. they could never really, uh, make things happen at the end of the day. They would, they would have these sort of, you know, research days where they would go to the library or whatever, just kind of, uh, read up on papers and mm -hmm. things like that. And they would sort of, yeah. um, devise algorithms and then kind of turn around and make recommendations to the engineering team for implementation and but they were always sort of at the first super roadmap and um and sort of having to wait and mm -hmm. i uh didn't want to wait i wanted to execute and to build <laughs> yeah that's a uh so uh when did you decide to leave the financial industry like graduated and then started working with the financial industry right before you decided to pursue a master's in computer science or did you make up your mind way before that? No, it was at the same time. It was actually, I was working at a hedge fund, um, a buy side speculative uh, trading group um, out of Chicago uh, in, this would be 2008. And, and at the same time, I started pursuing the degree in uh, the University of Chicago, which was a, a little bit of a slow pursuit. I. Um, I took a few classes at that company and then transitioned jobs and had to pick it up. So I, I didn't end up graduating until 2013, but, yeah. um, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I sort of, uh, did it at night and on the weekends. It's pretty amazing to be honest, like, you know, switching fields and all, and just, you know, following your heart. And then obviously you had a chance to, uh, co-found a company as well. Uh, what was that like, uh, you know, being a graduate and then, you know, instead of working for a big company, you decided to create your own. So what was that experience like overall as an engineer? Yeah, I think I, I got that bug from the University of Chicago. No, I had this great MBA program there. Uh, it's very exciting and energetic. And I was, 
had that thought of uh, wanting to pursue something on my own um, throughout my adult life. And I think being around a bunch of uh, business people that kind of, um, uh, I would, you know, when in talking with them and engaging with them, they made it seem that, you know, really hard problems for me, like raising money and, and sort of um, pitching an idea or whatever for them just seemed so easy. Um, and so I met someone who had an idea for business and, you know, which, which, uh, turned out to be this thing that we pursued called project fix up. Uh, um, and that was a, that was a fantastic, um, time in my life. Uh, it was very hard. It was very stressful. It was also very rewarding. We got through, um, this, uh, an incubator called Techstars, um, yeah. and met a lot of great people in that program. And I think that gave me the confidence to, um, it, it was a great learning experience in many ways, it's kind of like its own master's degree, um, that on a whole nother level, learning about the world, learning about business, you know, how software, um, gets monetized and, and plays part in that, um, how you, how you really put together a technology solution, you know, nothing can really happen in a vacuum, right? I mean, even if you want to make like video games, and, um, uh, for the artistic appeal of it or something like that. I mean, you always have, uh, the economics and, and the business environment, and, uh, in the background, you have to satisfy and address and, uh, mm-hmm. that, that was incredibly helpful, um, training for me. Um, and it also made me not shy away from very early stage companies, uh, early stage companies can have tremendous benefits and, uh, yeah, how to pay and, and, um, an exciting, energetic place to work and, and can be very, very fun. And that's where I first learned that I want to keep doing this. It's pretty amazing. You said that you were curious about raising money and I'm going to tell you a secret as an engineer. Sure. I always used to think that, you know, raising money, I, I would never be able to raise money. I'm not cut out to, for that, you know, it's something you need a, C, a CEO for that and, you know, uh, who has a, a right mindset and all. And as an engineer, I, I would have, I would never be able to do it. So was it, was it a main motivation for you as well that you wanted to learn the science behind it or were you also able to become a part of fundraising or any of, uh, any such activity while you were creating this company? Um, I don't think it's something that I set out, like, you know, I, I wanted to learn by doing that particular part of it. Um, I don't know if I would enjoy being a CEO, for example. Um, um, I could get to one of those jobs that sounds glamorous and cool. Uh, mm-hmm. but having worked with, so with, with CEOs so closely and, and so, uh, integral it's, I don't know, I think it's, I think it was, I think for me, my experience was a little bit more, uh, yin and yang. Um, I don't, I, I agree with you. I, um, I don't know if it's that I don't, I I don't know if I have a feeling that I can't do it or I wouldn't do it, but I simply don't want to. And that's that I, I kind of want the, the money to come in and the financials to sort of be taken care of and then to sort of, um, be free to work on a problem and, and see the problem. And I think part of mm-hmm. the job as, um, 
a CTO or a VP of engineering or, or anybody in a, in a leadership technology position is to understand uh, the resources at your disposal and what you can very much do with your resources. Very much, very much. And talking about being a CTO and Ian and the Yang, how is it like working with with Bridge as the CTO? Like that's your current job. Like what are your responsibilities? What do you do? How do you try and create impact? I, personally, this could be a learning experience for me as well because I'm the CTO at Remoteways you come across an array of problems that you have to solve daily. So would love to know the yeah. experience overall work at the CTO. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's very ongoing. It's very evolving. I'll probably be yeah, yeah. a year from now than I would right now. Yeah. And that, um, where bridges currently is there's a lot of, uh, planning and provisioning of what is the future state of this company? Um, we're growing quite quickly. We'll be doing our series B round this year. Um, and we've recently started landing, uh, very, very large enterprise contracts for us. Um, and closing those enterprise contracts is actually easier than, um, closing the closing and negotiating and, and executing on these enterprise, large enterprise deals. It's easier than what we were doing before, which was selling point solutions to, um, yeah. financial advisors. Yeah. Uh, seeing that is, um, is quite, um, eye opening. So one of the, one of the sort of lessons that I have about building a business is that, um, I think, you know, really understanding your customer and what the economics of that customer are going to bring to you. If you, and, and really making a, a line in the sand between B2B and B2C. Um, if you're going to be mm -hmm. B2C and you're going to have an app in the app store, you know, you really can't have like, I, mean, I don't know what that looks like. I've, I've never really uh, done it outside of Project Fixup without, I don't think it was mm -hmm. a shining example of that, but you can't have like, for example, a customer success team. Um, you need to be thinking mm -hmm. about scale um, with, you know, with the level of economics that you're going to be, um, mm -hmm. afforded. Whereas, uh, having like a, a software developer or a business as your customer, um, somebody else that's, which is, which is what we're doing right now, um, mm -hmm. where what is downstream of you is a whole other business with a separate set of concerns and, and large, uh, average contract size. Um, that is, uh, uh, completely different environment because you have to think, uh, you have to think about, you know, uh, provisioning and allocating technology resources to mm -hmm. solve the problem, both at hand, what's at hand today, but making sure mm -hmm. that as you take on these large deals that, um, mm -hmm. these large enterprise organizations, that what you're building is repeatable for the next contract that comes in so that you're not sort of tightly coupling to anything. Um, then you are, um, you know, creating, uh, technology that is, that is satisfying the use cases ahead of you, but that you're also mm -hmm. able to execute on the future use cases that you might not know about. Well, pretty much. And you use the word customer quite a few times. And, uh, I have a question here, like a lot of the CTOs I meet there and I've met with a lot of people who are, uh, you know some CTOs, some engineers and all, and most of them think that 
the job of a CTO is to make sure that tech is, you know, up and up and nothing else. They don't need to, inter- I mean, not, they're not very hard on that, but the general perception is that a CTO does not need to interact with the customers or they don't need to know a lot about, you know, the business side of things. So do you think it's the right thing to do or what was your journey like in terms of, because you've mentioned the word customers quite a few times. I'm, I'm assuming that you're very much, you know, on the same page with the business side of things. I think that there's a difference between a CTO that is hired versus uh, one that co-founds exactly. a company or yeah. versus co-founded. Very well, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a I think there's a different track and a different mindset to being an entrepreneur where it is a little bit more. You know, um, you don't need to be jack of all trades. I don't think that's the right thinking, but you do need to just mm-hmm. solve the problems ahead of you. And those problems might not fit into a nice, neat little box sometimes. And the the biggest, um, the biggest, uh, I think, um, asset that I have in my personality and my approach to business has been growing. It has just been, you know, I love this company. I love what we do. And I love the people that work yeah. here. And I will do anything and go to any mile for everybody involved in this, including our customers. And uh, it's very important for me that we get things right. And sometimes that requires taking me out of uh, the space of technology and to understand, you know, what's right for the business, what's right for our customers, um, understanding the the market, understanding, you know, product development, um, kind of having a hand into a lot of different things. Now, at the same time, I could see that, you know, um, you know, that's still um, that's been fun and interesting and cool. Uh, but I'm also looking forward to a day where, you know, we have the next level of scale because I think that we've already started to run into scale challenges and those create for, uh, really exciting technology challenges and opportunities. And that's, um, that I think is the next, next stage. That's always a good problem to solve, to be honest. And, uh, did the fix up? mindset help you in this role or has it been helping you because you know i read somewhere that once you are a founder you cannot go back you cannot take that thing out of you so did it help in this role because you're you're talking like a founder yourself like a founder would say that you know do anything it takes to make sure that the company progresses sometimes you have to be the cpo sometimes you have to be the customer success specialist and sometimes you just have to you know go out there and research what customers want what people want and all so is it all the fix up mindset or did you train yourself to be like this um i think it's part of my personality i think that i'm an introvert by heart and i internalize problems and i think that um when you're if you're considering a, a degree as a as a, as a, as a, if you're, if you're considering a, a career choice as a software developer or not, what I tell people is, I think what makes for a good software developer or, or any kind of engineer is mm-hmm. really, really, um, evaluating yourself and understanding, are you a person who internalizes problems or externalizes problems? And there are problems with sort of taking the extreme of both of those approach, um, approaches mm-hmm. when someone who internalizes problems uh, like kind of takes on what is in front of them and, um, internalizing it, meaning they take those on as their problems. And 
Now, the problem with that is if you can, um, you can go too far, you can take on responsibility that you, uh, you know, might not know how to do. It can make you feel worried. Exactly. Happens on the time. Yeah. 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 But, um, cause you to overwork, et cetera. But if you can, if you can move through that and you're okay with living in that world, it can give you, uh, leave you feeling with a very fulfillment, a lot of fulfillment, a lot of, uh, feeling of accomplishment or somebody who externalizes problems is not some somebody who is bad it's just not you know you want to be careful about how much your personality means on that that's a better uh, choice for a product developer i would say than an engineer um and what i mean by externalizing the problem is that you 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 care about the problem um but you mm-hmm. want to involve a lot of different constituents in solving that problem uh you want to develop your customers you want to talk to your engineers you want to um you want to talk to your cs people about you know how they would actually utilize the resulting impact or or whatever um so i think for me it's uh i think you can hire good people and they can be on a spectrum of that and it doesn't have to be that you know uh somebody who's passionate about the business needs to be a co-founder i think Mm -hmm. you can have um yeah i think i think everybody just kind of has their personality and and uh but when you think about hiring someone um you know it's it's important to understand not just the role that you're hiring for but how Mm -hmm. is this person that you're hiring going to engage the problem are they going to internalize the problem are they going to externalize it and are they going to do too much of either thing you need to know when to collaborate with your peers. You need to know when to, you know, have your head down and um, and execute on the mandate in front of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I and I agree to that. You use the word introvert. I would say introverted thinking is probably a big a biggest strength uh, a technical person can ever have. One of the things that uh, I believe is that if you are an engineer, it's easier to create a manager out of you or you know versus the other way around if you're a manager it's it's very hard to create an engineer out of you or make you an engineer or turn you into an engineer so um part of being uh thinking that way is that you know uh, as a cto in my opinion you should definitely use this use this introverted thinking with all the all the departments you have in the company you know be it be customer success be it be sales be it BHR, anything. At least I do it on a regular basis. I just sit with these people and try to figure out what what they are doing, how they do it, and you know how can I help them improve. So that has been uh, my biggest job uh, as a CTO at the board base, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I don't know if every day I'm wearing the CTO hat and I'm doing what the CTO is supposed to be doing. Um, because I, I typically find myself in that, you know, uh, role of managing people, uh, whether that's managing down or managing up or, or managing laterally. Um, I think that, uh, um, yeah, sometimes I feel like VP of engineering. Sometimes I feel like the CTO. And I think that's just a, a <laughs> uh, that comes with yeah. the territory of, of being a small company and, and building something on your own. But yeah, all this is to say, I would love to um, evolve and and you know um, to a point where 
we have scale or to have the scale where there is a little bit more, more focus and you can stay in your lane and you can you can sort of um uh delegate things out and in fact that uh bridges is is getting me there right now and i'd say this is uh probably the main point of um of leadership development between my ceo and myself where you know he's just constantly reminding me to not uh take on too much responsibility and, and, and hand things off to people and rely on on others which is a great um you know, as you grow and scale and evolve, that's a, that's a great feeling. I think in any role, the, the feeling that you can really, uh, rely on the people around you and develop trust around that and, uh, um, and really come to appreciate your peers is phenomenal, regardless of what your job is. Is it a universal thing that CTOs tend to take on responsibility they get never had? I do that all the time. I start working on things that I know for a fact that I won't be able to complete, but I still start doing those. So uh, now you're, you're saying the same thing that, you know, somebody has to remind you, in this case, your profile, that don't take a lot of responsibility every now and then. So uh, does that happen a lot with you that you tend to take a lot of responsibility from time to time? Because I do that a lot. And a lot yeah. of people have to remind me that, you know, you, you be easy, man, that you don't have to do this. Uh, I'm gonna do it. You don't have to. So what's up with all guys? Like, I, I, I. That resonates a lot with me. I do that all the time, and I don't think that you want to necessarily uh, box that side up of you too much. Um, you want to unleash it and tap into it when it's the right thing to do, because sometimes uh, going in and, and solving a problem or even just asking questions about them and, and being able to roll your sleeves up and deliver on some prototype, the, the, the technology landscape is littered with, you know, leaders that just went and did stuff. Um, you know, Google has built a whole culture around that of their whole 20% initiative thing where, you know, one day a week, do whatever you want to do. Um, yeah, some of the, some of the big projects, I mean, that's how we have Gmail, you know, Paul Bukite just sat yeah. down and made that because he, you know, he yeah. felt like he wanted to do it. So, um, and I remember, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg gave a talk about how, um, you know, they needed some memory caching thing and that's where memcache came from. And of course, Facebook, you know, mm -hmm. made react and like, so you, you don't want to, you don't want to lose sight of that, like inner hacker in you. When you need to sit down and hack, you need to hack. But I think that as you um, go up the leadership ranks, you're more just kind of um, you're trying to scope that work down, establish POCs, uh, spike out little projects, and and sort of you know just get the thinking that's in your head. Because yeah, what happens as you evolve? Like I think that being a good technologist. Uh, at in a in a high level is not necessarily being able to write code. It's being able to make decisions. A lot of what uh, technology evolves into, sure. I find, is yeah. your ability, is your judgment capacity, um, your ability to make good decisions, and that can sometimes come from intuitive places. It can come from past experiences. Um, but if you can establish a framework for okay. My spidey sense says this, and I'm going to move that way. And here's how I would solve the problem, but I'm going to come up with a little prototype. And what can be, I think, difficult and challenging um, for people. And I don't, 
you know, this is my own experience. I don't know too many CTOs, but you have to make sure that you don't get married to stuff. Um, you know, because you can, you can have that spidey sense, but, uh, you know, you can also hire really, really smart people that can probably do that job again way better than you can because they're going to be focused hundred percent. Yeah. They're more hands-on to be honest. Like they're, they're built for it and you are not like for me, uh, by the way, uh, but uh, do you still hack? Because I haven't coded in the past three months now, and that bugs me a lot. That was the first time in three months that I haven't uh, written a single line of code, and that is bugging me every single, every single moment. Yeah, yeah. I I don't um I don't have I don't find myself time to get in and hack. Um, I do I still enjoy being part of PR reviews, especially for big ones and and things like that. Of course, there's nothing preventing you from just, you know, opening up your IDE. You might have to do it. At exactly. Exactly. Time. Exactly. But, you know, there, there's, there's no stop at you in that front. I find that whenever I do that, it's it's usually um, less productive than I think. Or if I'm writing too much, uh, that that's time to just kind of say, okay, this is this is a proof of concept project. I'm going to, you know, throw this mm-hmm. up on GitHub, get together with a few of my people and and say like, Hey, we, you know, we have to take some of these ideas and, and put them into action. And usually what's more beneficial for me is just diagramming things out. I love, 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 yeah. love, uh, even more than programming and yeah. love getting in front of a whiteboard with people talking about ideas. Um, and you know, that's harder to do these days. Um, but, uh, you know, you can, you can get on, uh, you know, on a, on a, yeah, you're saying that it's harder these days. Is it because of the remote ones? Because that was my next question. If, are you guys working remotely? And if yes, then how does it like fit into the equation? You know, you collaborating and all. Because again, I live in the US and 80% of our team is distributed all around the world. Like we have people working from 32 different cities all around the world. And that's the hardest thing for me, you know, uh, chasing time zones and, you know, trying to collaborate with people who are like far, far away. Yeah. I think, um, just to reminisce about, uh, a, a, a simpler time, maybe, uh, we used to have a great <laughs> office in Chicago that overlooks late night then. And, you know, it was, I think that, you know, we were, we were in a non-remote environment and we didn't even realize that like it, it it's not like a decision that anybody made that okay we have to you know we all have to live in the same city and go into an office and kind of sit there and be mm-hmm. with each other um mm-hmm. i think that thinking just kind of was in place from the 1950s or or you know whenever the modern office kind of um mm-hmm. uh became into being yeah and then all of that um uh, getting challenged in, in 2020 was interesting because for us, we actually wanted to build out and expand our office, but, um, nobody, everyone's, you know, started not showing up. That didn't make any sense to do. And so, uh, everyone, um, not only did people not show up for work, but we just kind of said like, okay, we're, we're a remote company now. And that's that, um. And then what happened was quite interesting for us, which is everybody started leaving Chicago, myself included. 
Um, I love sure. Chicago. I'm from Chicago, and I, I think it's a great city. But, you know, uh, I think, you know, the, like with anything, I mean, if you are in one place for too long, you kind of want to go see the world a little bit and, and explore. And uh, for me, that meant Miami and South Florida. And for other people, yeah. that meant other things. Um, I will say this. I, like, I think now it's only resurfacing in a lot of... Uh, you know, in the media and everything. Um, yeah, there's, there's recently, a, a, a sort of the CEO of Morgan Stanley said that, you know, yeah, we might not yeah. kind of like people have to come back into work. And so I think really a game plays like, yeah, really yeah. yeah. So it's almost becoming this divisive issue. Um, I don't, I don't see us, uh, I can see us having multiple offices. Because it is uh, fun to to and beneficial to sort of get with your um, to get into a room with your peers, and when that happens, or when we're able to make that happen, um, it's uh, it's quite enjoyable and it's quite productive. Having said that, you know you can schedule on sites and and kind of fly people around. It's a little bit more expensive and everything, but it's all mm-hmm. it's also offset a little bit the fact that you're not paying for office space month over month. Very much. Um, very much. And- so would you even want to go back? Because for me, I think I uh, I get more time if I'm working remotely, if I'm working out of my home office, you know, I get more time. I can get more things done. Uh, what are your thoughts? Like, would you ever want to go back to the office? Because for me, and I am an introvert, and I am an INTP, and a physical interaction, it drains me out. Like, I cannot focus on work. I cannot get things done. If I am alone in my home office, I get a lot more than so. What's your take on the whole thing yourself? Like, would you want to go back? Um, I'd like to have more of a balance than we do today, and also before that we had before the pandemic. And um, I always like the model that uh, the story of Zapier bootstrapping itself as a company, where yeah, they kind of started off as a remote company and. Uh, they were built out of Chicago and their journey with that was that they, they knew someone that was, uh, uh, somewhere and they wanted to hire them, but they didn't want to make them like move to Chicago because they had a family and everything. Um, mm-hmm. and so they just kind of made it work. And the way that they made it work is, uh, they just, you know, started doing these quarterly on sites every quarter and, and getting people together and it turned into their culture. I think uh, AWS to some extent has that culture. I've talked to people at, at AWS and there's a lot of um, build up around reinvent and having this sort of annual thing where a lot of um, senior developers and product managers kind of go out and get together, not only uh, with themselves one-on-one, but also to get in front of their customers and to give talks and you know things like that. Um, it's been a while since I've been to reInvent, so I don't know how that's going today. But um, I think that getting on some kind of cycle of, of getting together with your peers is healthy and useful. And when you are intentional about that time, it can be very productive and people make good advantage of it. But I agree that, you know, just going into an office for the sake of going into an office. Um, yeah, it can yeah, quite, yeah. Uh, well, big up your laptop could have yeah. done from anywhere. If, I, if I'm going to the office right. just to open up my laptop and work from there, so doesn't make a lot of sense. By the way, I didn't know that Zapier was based in Chicago. I always thought the company was based out of Salt Lake City. 
I don't know why I was thinking. Like, I, I hope I have that right. Uh, it's it may, maybe it's not Sapphire. I I I don't know. But uh, there's some <laughs> company that was out of Chicago like that that was early on at remote engagement. Um, and they had a story. I don't know, maybe maybe I'm not thinking right. Yeah, I mean, uh, because uh, with Zapier, it's uh, it's fully bootstrapped, and then I think they did Bicey as well. It did not raise afterwards, and I think then they had an ARR of 100 billion. So they have a really a really solid story. But uh, that's great. Uh, and thank you for your time, Alan. Uh, I think I've learned a lot, and uh, a lot of the people in our audience they are like report workers, mostly engineers. So. One last thing, uh, and I know your time is precious here, but any advice for us, you know, working remotely from all around the world? So how do you, how do, how do you see engineers who work remotely? Like maybe some of the people would want to apply into your company as well. So uh, what's your take on, on, on work, you know, people working remotely and all? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I hadn't thought about it. All I can say is one of the best experiences of my recent life is I went with a friend uh, to Europe last summer. Um, we spent a month uh, working remotely. We both worked in tech. Um, oh, nice. And we different just got companies. Our... Sorry, different companies. Different companies, yeah. Uh, she works at a, a much larger okay. company. I'm at a smaller company. And uh, okay. we got... Um, we got a couple of apartments in uh, Vienna is where we went to have our oh, nice. uh, remote work uh, existence. And then we took some vacation time and, you know, throughout Europe and, and we got to enjoy Europe a little bit. Um, I don't I don't know uh, what advice or conclusions I have out of that other than I personally loved it. I would uh, I would really enjoy it. I think that uh, living the opportunity to be able to live and work remotely is um something that you know it is like fairly unique um you know you can't do it in hospitality and you can't do it uh in every industry but certainly yeah. uh tech is is highly lenient to that and i think it's a job benefit um that uh, should really be embraced and if you are uh you know we have uh someone at, at bridge who who I never know where he is in the world. He's, I mean, he, he's not <laughs> in the U.S. Uh, kind of uh, between Washington D.C., New York, Minneapolis, Seattle. I think kind of talked Um, I think that's great. I think, um, you know, uh, thinking about, you know, not needing to have like a big giant house which i think is the classic american dream that of course comes with a lot of debt especially these days and sort of living in a in a you know more of a minimalist environment and and yeah able to travel around um i know it's great i wouldn't i wouldn't trade it you know i don't want to say i wouldn't trade it for anything i i don't know what the future holds for me but um it's uh while you have it i think it's something to be embraced and something to be enjoyed and uh, much be intentional with it so very much and you talk about the american dream i again i read somewhere i think Quora or something but millennials are not chasing the american dream anymore like they not a lot of people want big houses now and people are more happy you know traveling around the world and working and you know having that flexibility in their lives which has frankly worked really well for me i was only able to move to the u.s because i could work remotely with remote base and, you know, I can still work from here and expand the team. 
And uh, it's beautiful that we have people uh, working in the smallest of cities from Pakistan with Silicon Valley based companies and creating a lot of impact, you know, right from where they live. So it's pretty empowering overall, in my opinion. Yeah, fantastic. Pretty much perfect, Alan. Uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, I learned a lot, to be honest. I think our audience did too. Uh, until next time. Yeah, this is great. This is such a fun chat. Uh, thank you so much, Tella, and, and best of luck with everything. And uh, I, I, uh, I really appreciate your time as well. This is great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you.